out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter Steve Wynn of The Dream Syndicate and also a prolific recording career, solo career, and worked with such people as Dan Stewart from Green on Red with a project titled Danny and Dusty that came out several, well, decades ago. Anyway, look, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat that gets edited out, we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Steve, it's all over to you. This is very interesting because I just did um, a podcast last week um, where the theme of the podcast is five formative moments that made you who you are. So I'm well rehearsed for this answer right now. And, <laughs> and, and it's very, very, look, I was born four years before you. I'm born in 1960. So kind of, you know, I feel pretty happy about being born that year, except for on days when my bones were aching more than they should. I, 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 I was born at a time where I kind of discovered the Beatles in real time, which was exciting as a four-year-old to discover that. And at the same time, I was also born at a time where I turned 17 in the year of punk rock. Right. So Steve those Wynne. are two, so two big things being, being a, you know, being a, a toddler, essentially a four or five year old and hearing the Beatles on the radio and saying, well, what is this? And seeing the excitement of that. And, and also a great time for AM radio. Cause when you're that age in the, you know, in growing up in LA in the sixties, your life is AM radio and AM radio was amazing. Then you would hear, you know, of course we all know everything from the Rolling Stones and the Beatles to Herb Albert, to, to Frank Sinatra, all to Smokey Robinson in the same set. But at the same time, turning 17 and having that flush of freedom when you leave home and when you go off to college, when you are you know, driving a car and all that, at the same time for me, when the Clash and the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks and the Jam were all happening, that was thrilling too. So I think my life is kind of marked by those two things, my musical life. Yes, and did you get things like the Beatles films? Because I was probably very young at the time, but I can remember when the Beatles films appeared on TV, and then there was also Cliff Richard's Summer Holiday, which was a great film. Um, so those moments always kind of struck me. And we also, we had very few channels, so we had Top of the Pops on a Thursday and then the, the Top 40 on a Sunday evening. So that was kind of a big thing, really, uh, you know, in our life. So we didn't have that kind of great. access yeah. to, to so much stuff, but we did have a lot of access to that kind of radio too, which I probably listened to when my mum was in the kitchen and being a housewife in the 60s so we you know I grew up with the sort of the Burt Bacharach and you know Scylla Black and D.L. Warwick and Andy Williams so there was a sort Great. of and then obviously the Carpenters and I often felt that if you love the Carpenters which I do um, you're definitely going to love Joy Division and the Smiths because lyrically they're just amazing <laughs> It's true. Well, actually, I think it's not a great leap from rainy days and Mondays to say um, level tears apart. They're, 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 they're e- e- two sides of the same depression. They are. They are very yeah. depressing songs. But yeah. as a sort of 10 year old listener to this, I was quite struck. So when did you sort of discover that you were going to move a little bit further in rather than just being a consumer like I was, but actually, be, you know, like picking up an instrument or sort of singing? When did that sort of occur to you? Well, I'll take it one step back to your last question, because you said that we had the Beatles films, and yes, we did. But the thing, the, the first formative thing I'd say in my life musically was, in fact, this thing. I don't know if you had it in England. You likely did. I don't know. But there was a Beatles cartoon, a Saturday morning Beatles cartoon. Are you aware, are you aware of that? Are you hip to that? 
I think I've heard people talk about this from America, actually, they get this on Saturday morning Beatles cartoons. It's the first way, it's probably my first exposure to the Beatles, to pop music, to the idea of a rock and roll group and what they would be like to be together in this kind of arguably horrible show that I mean, I apparently was not sanctioned by the Beatles themselves. I think Brian Epstein probably signed a piece of paper and got a bunch of money and took most of it. Who knows what was behind it, but it was, it was this cartoon with really bad attempts at Liverpool accents and kind of cockeyed scripts where they always sleep in the same room and you know in this row of, tw of single beds and have adventures it was silly but there'd always be two Beatles songs per episode right and and they would get into a four-year-old so well these guys are having a great time they're they're just as exciting as Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner but you know they've got these guitars and they do these things and I have to say that probably did it all for me that that I, I came out of that saying I want to hear more of this music I want to know what it's like to live this kind of life to yes. be you know to, to be live like they do maybe that was the first flush of that and i got us and i started playing guitar and getting guitar lessons and learning songs at age eight not long after that and oh. i was my first first band first band i played in was with, when i was nine years old a band called the light bulbs and it was a me on guitar a friend of mine who played drums and five singers you know because nobody really played anything it's like well you want to be in our band yeah i sing great you're in the band and we would do hey you so they could all do the na 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 thing you know well the two of us played music and before long i was really playing you know real bands that would play you know the doors and the stones and the who and the beatles at age nine and ten i was writing songs by then kind of was yeah. off to a fast start you were very fast and were your parents quite sort of hip and happening in that way or were they you know were they because obviously during the 60s it was such a sort of uh, amazing decade for so many different things and you know some people obviously loved all the change some people must have hated all the change and all the stuff that was going on from you know civil rights movement to sort of gay rights to sort of Vietnam and then the psychedelic world and then the sort of honeymoon of the summer of love followed by Charles Manson and it all going terribly wrong and Woodstock mm. and then Hendrix and Morrison and Joplin all dying so it, you know it was a kind of a fast track kind of moment wasn't it that that sort of eight years between sort of I don't know 1962 to 1970. It was and funny you mentioned Charles Manson that was another formative thing for better or for worse because um in that year, I was nine years old, and, and my fam, my mother, my stepfather, and I moved to um, kind of that area, more or less, not far away from where the Manson killings were. And, um, and I had always lived before that in the flat land, kind of the, the, the down, not downtown, but the flat, busy city life area of LA. And here I was suddenly living up in the canyons and, and reading about Charles Manson. I, and I was sure they were coming, because there was that period between the murders and when they caught Manson yes. and the family. So for those two months, I felt like, well, we're next. My God, every every sound and creak outside the window, I felt like was, was you know that our time was up. So it began a fascination with the dark side of things, with yes. the, with the, with this whole kind of maybe, you know, I think a, psychologically a lot of what you you know you 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 want to you want to embrace the things that scare you. So I think that I start, that's maybe why I write about a lot of kind of darker things. Was that that initial mixing of that with as you say the idealism and the the um, uh, exhilaration of the 60s, that yeah. head-on collision of the darkness of the 70s with the fun of the 60s. Maybe they, maybe they had a lot to do with things. Well, the 70s, for a long time, had bad press, didn't it? Because it was like, oh, the 60s, that was the decade. Oh, I wish I was born in the 60s. But then slowly, the 70s, everyone's gone, actually, that was quite good, really. I know. Quite they, good. 
that was quite really, it was just quite good. Mm. Cool. But initially, it was a little bit, oh, that's a shame you missed the 60s, because frankly, we had all the best drugs and all the best sex and all the best rock and roll. But then suddenly people said, well, actually, we had, you know, the glam world of David Bowie. Then we had, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there was prog, which is obviously a bit tricky. Then there was the sort of rock scene. And there, was the, there was the, I know, tricky, <laughs> kind of prog rock. Because I, my brother was seven years older than me. So he was at late, late 50s. And he hit the years of Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. And I, as a very young person, would sneak into his room and play those records and think, my God, this is amazing music. There's not playing anything like this on the radio, obviously. Six, you know, 16 minute songs. Um, but then, you know, then you had punk and then you had disco and then you had early rap and, and you know, there was an amazing explosion. But then politically, you know, we had the IRA blown up that we had mm. three day week, you know, Britain looked absolutely like it was all going to the dogs. Um, and it probably was in a way because there was a lot of strikes and there was like the unions were very strong in this country. And it was kind of 79 yeah. when Thatcher came in, things kind of changed again. So the 70s did have a little bit of a bad press to it. You know, I think now that we are further away from it, we can slightly forget the grim period where, because, you know, I was talking to, I don't know, quite a few artists like Fast Eddie from Motorhead. And he was talking about being in a band during the 70s. And he and he was saying that, you know, they you wouldn't believe how little money they had. And they would occasionally go and play a gig somewhere north and not have any petrol back and they would literally have to sort of vandalize their vehicle call the breakdown service and get towed back to london and uh, <laughs> and, and several bands i know oh, man yeah would, would drive from london to say glasgow the gig mm-hmm. was cancelled because you didn't you know was, oh no one told us obviously you know you didn't have email in those days but we've got no money to get back so they'd have to sort of busk for the next couple of days on you know the streets of glasgow and then sort wow. of back, money back so you know that was the 80s but as 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 far steady from motorhead said you know you wouldn't believe how little money there was i mean i mean it's, it's there's definitely a, i think maybe there were very different experiences of the 70s especially the early 70s in the uk versus the us i look at the early 70s as this great time in the us when especially growing up in los angeles which is a different experience because la being you know being a big, you know, the, the, even LA versus New York, even as big cities go, has kind of free wheel and do your own thing, man. I think it was a period of time, culturally, musically, sexually, even politically, where it's kind of like, if you you had to kind of, ex, um, it was very uncool to be against something, to be, you know, in the 60s, the revolution was happening, but as you said before, maybe an older generation would have said, we're against that. I think in the early 70s, you know, my parents were experimenting with with weed and with 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 um, groups. I don't know with orgies. It's not that's too extreme a word, but with with you know expanding their sexual horizons, shall we say? Yeah. And with again, LA in the '70s, so it's a very different thing than maybe it was happening in Iowa or or Missouri, but but it was happening. And I and, and you know, I, I think there was this before we, things were clamped down by say the age of Reagan and the age of AIDS and things like that, where, where the, um, the, the, where the, the status, where the um, establishment got their revenge in the seventies, it felt pretty freewheeling. I loved the early seventies. It was a great time to grow up. And musically, like you said, there was Bowie, there was Roxy music. There was, you know, um, even, who knows, I can, we can name a zillion things. A lot of our favorite bands, you know, especially the early part of the seventies. And I think 1971 is now being seen as this magic year. Yes. There was a book that came out by um, a writer over there and became a TV series here this year as this golden period where where all the hit makers start expanding their horizons. And yes, it's a it's a leap from, say, you know, She Loves You to Abbey Road to 
to yes and the ELP. It's like, you know, that's, that's, that's the ambition going to the extreme. But people were trying to see how far can I push this thing? And yeah, then, absolutely. And, and that was kind of interesting because I've just seen that people watching that Apple TV series on 1970. So there was, there was, you know, there was the Carol King and Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and Laurel Canyon. And um, yes, it, it, it does kind of start to make the 70s. I think it kind of reevaluates the 70s a bit more and say, hey, wait a minute, this was good stuff. You it know? was. But I will say this, because this is, you know, this will echo the point we're making here, is that, yes, I was playing in bands actively from nine to 13. I, I was, you know, pretty, I think in my mind, in retrospect, we were pretty good. I have a theory in my mind that we that one of my first concerts, which was played at my junior high school, um, um, you know, the, the what do you call it, the playground, whatever the the, the grounds there, um, we got to play a noontime show. Me and my buddies, we were called Sudden Death Overtime, and we played. I know we played Pinball Wizard, Jumping Jack, Flash, um, a couple other things. I forgot whatever. I think in the audience for that show was Michael Jackson. Nice. Because he went to my junior high school for one quarter, and I think he, in my in my mind that was the quarter or the semester where he went to my junior high school. So I might have played with my first shows for Michael Jackson. I'm going to stick to that story. I would but, definitely. Uh, yeah, that's truth, man. We're verifying it right here. But the thing is, I the shortly after that, when I was 13, say or 1973, I became very disenchanted with being in a band because suddenly things had shifted from the music we're talking about to the rock. And the things were way out of reach for a kid my age and of my ability. So if maybe at 11, I could fantasize about being the Beatles or the Who or the Stones. I could feel like something in my within my reach. By the time I was 13, 14, the biggest, all the bands were playing arenas and they were all playing, you know, fast, fast, fast and with giant prog rock and those type things. And I went, well, this is not for me. And there's no way I can even think about being that kind of band. I don't want to be that kind of band. And what happened then is I became a sports writer. I became obsessed with baseball, with sports in general. And from the age, say, 13 to 17, I shifted gears like, like you know, put on the brakes from 60 to zero or the other way around and went to a different direction. That's amazing. You went, you went there. I think actually Pete Thomas from Pierre Ubu was also sort of a, a writer. I can't remember. David, Dave, David Thomas. Dave Thomas, yeah, not Pete. Yeah, I yeah, think Pete, yeah. Pete might have been in the Elvis Costello. Exactly. Drummers, yeah. <laughs> one of those you is your do you have a microphone quite close to your i do it does sound a little pup, pup, puppy but it's not terrible I, oh yeah yeah well i should know that I should, and i don't have my my my, my windscreen i'll call it oh that's that's much better no it's fine. okay that's well, i hope i hope i haven't ruined the last five answers no no they were all fine but i just kind of okay. thought oh actually that's it's kind of kind of excited so what's um yeah kind of excited exactly i i yeah. i get excited about this stuff I do too. But with your sports writing, was it the case that you had actually started to fantasize about sort of that was going to be a career or what, not being a sports writer, but being a sports person, man? Yeah, actually, yes. Not, a, not an athlete, believe me, by any means at any point ever. But I did, you know, I was, like I said before, that I was writing songs. I'd always been a writer of some sort. I guess I wanted to do that. I was writing cartoons. I was writing little stories writing songs quite a few by the time I was 13 and then my writing Jones my writing needs switched over to writing about athletes and I and actually became kind of a successful sports writer I was um you know not only for the high school paper but also for a, a local Los Angeles paper one of the like number three or four paper in the city and I really felt like this is what I'm gonna do I I get to be creative I get to you know I think I was always attracted whether it was through riding my bike to buy 
records or playing in bands with preteens or being a sports writer, the idea of being independent, being able to go out and do my own thing, kind of yes. explore. And that, of course, turned into my love of touring over the years. I just like that. So sports writing felt like, yeah, I can get in my car. I'm 16. I just got my license. I can drive all over Los Angeles to every high school and write about a football football game and then get back to the newspaper office and write it up. And when I wake up the next morning, it'll be on my doorstep. Wow, this is the greatest life ever. And I felt like that was going to be kind of exciting. And then I left high school, went to college up at a small town in Northern California called Davis, California, intent on going through the motions to get whatever I had to get under my belt so I could start writing sports for a major metropolitan newspaper. And suddenly punk rock happened. And then I saw and heard the Ramones. And then I saw and heard the Sex Pistols and the Talking Heads and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and all these bands. I went, wait a second. This makes sense to me. This is actually reminding me, reminding me how much I loved music, which I, I'd, stay, I'd stayed a music fan, but it brought back that thrill of discovery of music and also reminded me, I can do this. Not necessarily, I didn't imagine I could be Johnny or Joy Ramone. When I saw the Talking Heads for the first time, I said, you know what, that is within my reach, and and I, that would be fun. And suddenly, it all changed. Yes, I stopped putting sports. I stopped putting sports on a dime, and then started the thing I'm doing now. Yeah, and just on that sports front, just one bit, because I can remember the excitement of Muhammad Ali when he ever had any of his fights. You know, they were just massive. You know, and there was those films, yeah. Rumble in the Jungle, and also yeah. Thriller in Manila. Um, was were they were they kind of events that you got quite kind of caught up and captivated by with this kind of amazing character that at the time was just there, but now we look back and think, my God, you know, that was something else. And those kind of sports writers who were there at the time was it Norman Mailer who did a book on mm. um, on uh, Muhammad Ali. So were, was were the, were things like that sort captivating it was i mean I, th I think that you know I, I remained a sports fan and strangely enough i play I, I, i'm in a band now called the baseball project where we sing about baseball so it's kind of come full circle but in this i know that for example in the baseball project we write most of our songs about players from the 70s because in the 70s athletes were a whole lot of fun you know um i mean i can't I can't name drop all the all the football players or over like a few maybe but not too many but over here we had you know, yeah, Ali was worldwide, of course, and um, there were there's a baseball player named Reggie Jackson, another one. You know, a lot of your listeners won't know this, or, or football players like Joe Namath or stuff like that, who were rock and rollers. They were outspoken and dressed crazy, and you know, and 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 were you know as 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 flamboyant as any as any yes, pop star. Well, it was it was fun. Well, we had, there was a whole load of football players in the 70s who never kind of managed to sort of particularly play for their country because their lifestyle was a bit too wild. But they were beautiful football players, but they, they obviously spent a lot of time in nightclubs and, you know, George Best being the most famous uh, of the yes. kind of people who would often sort of be seen with Miss World on his arm, you know, the night before mm. an important game. And um, yeah, you know, and I, there was that famous story where, you know, somebody barges in and says, you know, he's there with, you know, I don't know, Miss World, and there's like all this champagne and money all over the place. And and the butler said something like, or the other sort of the staff saying, where did it all go wrong, George? And he was like, well, you know, I mean, obviously it does, because <laughs> your liver fails, but at the time, you know, you're just thinking, well, it's a good life, isn't it? But anyway, those people don't exist because you have to be so finely tuned now, don't you, really? So you, you do, you do. It's, it's very <laughs> different. And, and again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, like that it was that magic time 
in say 70 to 75 or 70 to 76 or whatever, where it was okay. To, there were all these things for better or for worse and some things that were not, you know, the, a lot of things that are very uncool and, and, and were, were curtailed for a very good reason, you know, um, um, uh, but, you know, people just kind of quote unquote did their own thing. It's like, it was yeah. like this, is, it was just- Well, can you remember you just know. on that point, um, when we were growing up, when you heard, you know, rock stars being pop stars or whatever being sort of interviewed and they, they'd often get, you know, asked, you know, why are you into music? And they would say, oh, it's sex, drugs and rock and roll in that way. And I'm, I'm sure that about 10, 15 years ago, someone said, don't ever keep saying that. We don't. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, the funny, and, 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 and the funny thing about that is like, I think about that, and of course, that's, you know, you hear that so often. Oh, I got the band to, to pull birds, you know, and stuff like that. And, it, it sure and doesn't I, say it. And it wasn't the case for me ever. And I don't say that in some type of, you know, sanctimonious way, but man, my, and I think, I think my generation of musicians, whether, whether it be REM or, or the other bands in my scene, like Green on Red and the Longwriters, we were all motivated motivated by our record collection. We all loved music so much, and we are music collectors and geeks. And our dream was to have our record placed within the confines, within the context of our record collection. I know that you know, you know, you know, the people I, I play in bands with, you know, with like like Peter and and Mike from REM and my wife Linda, who was in Zuzu's Pedals, and all of us. We're from that era where we just loved music so much. Now, as as time went on, we discovered the joys of the road and 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 excessive behavior and how much fun that could be. But really, the motivation was: I want to make a record as good as my favorite record. And if that happens, that's all I need. Yes, absolutely. I was just playing the the Hindu love gods the other day, thinking, what a band! With they were Warren Warren Zim on on vocals. That was just you know they what, what, what a mashup, yeah. That was fantastic. So then as, as the 70s progressed and you, you started to sort of form more bands, the first one was The Suspects, wasn't it? That's right. That was up in Davis, California, where I went to school. And then as the 70s, and, and then the 70s closed, that's when the Dream Syndicate started, wasn't it? So in this country, we had 79 was Thatcher, and then she came in, there was the sort of the great Reagan Thatcher and the, the shift to the right, and then we had sort of things like the Falkland crisis and then the minor strike, and, and that was that post-punk period. So how did you feel sort of with the Dream Syndicate, you know, because often with punk as, and, and with any scene, there's a little bit of a honeymoon period, which is great, isn't it? And then you realise you need to leave the party before you're stuck there sort of doing either doing the washing up or um it just gets really tacky doesn't it so how did you um feel or how did you sort of work out where you're going to fit into this you know it's weird it, it, it's it's it, lucky weird bit of luck in a way that i left high school and went to college in like i said davis california which is a, which is a small just a college town near about 10 minutes from sacramento california and about an hour and a half from the Bay Area from Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco. And I was there from 77 to 80, which you think of that in terms of music. I, a kid born in a big city, born in, you know, born and raised in Los Angeles, left the big city just in time for the biggest musical revolution that changed my whole life. And in some ways I feel like I missed it. I missed all those bands and clubs that were happening then. And, but in a way I was lucky because I was in this very small petri dish of Davis where not much was going on. And the people there who, the, the, the 20 of us who liked this kind of music all got to do bands off the radar together, like me and Kendra Smith, who were, formed the Dream Syndicate, mm -hmm. and Russ Tolman, who formed True West, and Guy Kaiser, who formed Thin White Rope, 
and Scott Miller, who became Game Theory and Loud Family. We were all hanging out together in this little town, and we were the only people who liked this kind of music, and we all really got to learn what we were into. By the time I left Davis in 1980, I went back to L.A. because I got sick of being in a small town. The novelty wore off pretty fast. In my mind at that point, it was all over. Like I said, the party was over. The, the, the dirty dishes were on the counter, and instead of the exhilaration of the initial blast of punk rock, we were left with a bunch of new romantic music and six six Sputnik, you know, and 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 haircut one hundred and Lord knows what. And it really felt to me, and it's funny how when you're young, two three months is an eternity, and you know the two or three months from say Sandinista to whatever crap was rolling around then, it felt like it felt like a, just a wasteland. I remember in 1981 feeling like you know. There's just nothing I want to listen to anymore. There were, of course, there were good bands. Of course, they, you know, I can name, you know, uh, you know, Joy Division or, or Orange Shoes or The Fall from your from your side of the Atlantic, and over here bands like, say, The Gun Club and The Flesh Tones, The Feelies, sort of bands I liked. But it felt like it was just nothing going on. And I have to say, one of the main reasons that we started the Dream Syndicate and got so excited about it was. And we say this all, I say this all the time, but it's really true. We were making the music we wanted to hear because nobody else was playing it. It's like, well, nobody, we love this stuff. And we honestly figured at the time we will be our own favorite band. And if that's all we are, then we're fine. Maybe if we're, maybe if we're our own favorite band, the four of us, maybe 10 other people will feel the same way. See what happens. Yes, absolutely. Was it a little bit like growing up in Athens, Georgia, when you sort of compared notes of being in, in a small town America, you know, that kind of community where, you know, you're going to get that, you know, all the, not freaks, but, you know, little tribes quickly develop because actually there isn't that kind of huge spread and there's not that much choice. You know, you're going to have to sort of get together with the other few people in that community because there's, there's not a much, you know, beyond, beyond that small group of people. Yeah, I think so. I think I think that definitely, had I been in LA for those years, I might have just felt overwhelmed by it or felt not cool enough. You know, I mean, you know, I like I was, I was never the cool kid per se, whatever that means. You know, I, but so I, I, if had I tried to get into the scene that was happening in LA, it might have been, yeah, I'll go to the shows, but you know, I can't hang with these people. They're mythic gods, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I never had to worry about that intimidation. Yes. None of us were none of us were mythic gods in in Davis, California, or or probably Athens, Georgia, either. But what I found, you know, doing this show and sort of having sort of remembered it, that period. I mean, during the early '80s, there was a lot of unemployment in this country, and so there was a lot of people claiming unemployment benefit and job seekers allowance. And then, sort of, there was there was that sort of period of sort of uh, I don't know, U two and Simple Minds, as well as um, Echo and the Bunny Men and Julian Cope. But then, sort of '83 happens, comes along. It's the year of the Smiths. Actually, the Smiths were a big gig in my life, and sort of for five years, they kind of have this kind of importance in the indie world. And obviously, you get the mainstream charts with you know Trevor Horn and that production sound and new romantics and then you get sort of the jazz scene with Sade but you know for us indie kids who all felt a bit sort of you know left behind and angsty and insecure the Smiths were the soundtrack and and there were bands like you know the, the June Brides and you mentioned um yeah Orange Juice and the Go-Betweens and, and the Triffids so there was a there was a kind of a golden period of sort of singer you know sensitive singer songwriter with great sort of melodies mm -hmm. and guitar hooks did you pick up a little bit on that kind of vibe in America that things were sort of swinging to 
that image, you know, and then obviously REM on IRS records as well had started to develop as well over, over the Atlantic. Well, I, I, I think that, you know, a real formative year for me was 81, because that's the year before the Dream Syndicate. That's, you know, that's a year where I was actively looking for something, not, not necessarily something that would influence me. I, I honestly did not in any way, no way, no how imagine me doing what I've ended up doing. I didn't, if I, if you would have told me when I was 21, I was going to have 40 years ahead of me being doing making music for a living and making 30 albums or 40 albums or touring all the time, was it, <laughs> yeah, you know, wake up, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. But I was looking for something to excite me musically, and I was getting a, a lot of it from England at the time. And the, the bands you say, there was the postcard bands, definitely. And like I say, you know, Marky e. Smith would just, just set a fire under me. That just that hearing, hearing grotesque and hex induction hour, and 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 the Slag Slate CP. That just was, you know. But I think, but I think in the, the time in the states. There were some good bands, but it just didn't, it felt so fragmented, it felt unexciting. But what I didn't think about was the same time I was looking, there were people all over this, all over the U.S. looking, and there was a, there was Bob Mould and Paul Westerbilt looking for the same thing in Minneapolis, and there was, um, say, Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo looking for the same thing in New York, and and Peter Buck and and Mike Mills looking for that in Athens, Georgia, and and this goes on and on. and and. and 20 other people in LA who ended up forming the Bengals and the Rain Parade and Long Riders and Green on Red doing the same thing in LA. And we were all having that same feeling of, we want, you know, we're ready. We're ready for something. We're 21 now. We're ready for our time, but it's not happening. And we made our own time. So after that happened, I was aware, of course, of the Smiths, for example. But by the time the Smiths came along, I was a guy making records on a major record label and touring with the US with U2. Yes. You know, and, and suddenly it's like, I heard everything differently. The one thing about, I think, being, I'm still a huge music fan. I still want that thrill. I still listen to new things all the time. But I'll never hear music in the same way that I did when I was 21. Because now, no matter much, how much I try to avoid it, I'll always be thinking in terms of, huh, maybe I can use that, that, and that for my next song. Yes. And that's okay. But, it, but it's definitely different than it was when I heard it the music at 21 and didn't think those things. Well, I guess, you know, the two musical heroes is David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead. There's others as well, but, you know, they always used to say when they, um, you know, their most you know, important influential artist was, and they both said the same person, Little Richard, you know, and, and uh. I always remember Lemmy said, you, you can't be that 16-year-old, 18-year-old again, you know, for him, that period of Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, you know, Elvis Presley, but, you know, Little Richard just and Bowie said the same, you know, you just think like, nothing had prepared you for something quite so outrageous and so wild that it was such a liberation that, um, yes, life was never going to be the same again. It's funny, and that band for me, when I think about it, because I've talked to you, like I was saying to you, obviously, given the age I was, the Beatles had an impact like that. And, and yes, The Who definitely did and punk rock did. But the band, more than any other band that did that to me, was Roxy Music. I think because, first of all, they were so... They had a great, great mixture of being catchy and melodic, but at the same time, pretty out there and avant-garde. And also, I heard them and discovered them when I was 16, like you're saying about, you know, about, you know, about, about Lenny and, and, and things yes. like that. It's like, that's the book. That's the magic age. That's when the world expands. That's when maybe you discover sex or you get to drive a car for the first time or get to stay out till midnight now and then, things like that. And Roxy Music hit me at that time where I went, this is my band and this is 
the world outside and this is what life is going to be like and yeah it's, i'm still a huge fan yes well absolutely every was it every dream house is a every okay. every dream every dream home a heartache yeah yeah beautiful what a wild song it is a wild song. So then, you know, because because in this country, you know, we had some really definite gatekeepers. You know, we had John Peel, who was very influential. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, then we had three weekly music papers like the NME, Melody Making Sounds. And every little town and village, not village, every town and city had an alternative, you know, indie night or, you know, yeah, it was always an alternative night, you know, which was mm-hmm. often on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday of the week. Yes. That's <laughs> when they could have them. So you could really, you know, get on that kind of trip quite quickly and sort of become something and obviously from the UK we're always looking for the most obscure bands from America so obviously you know when we started getting into sort of bands like Green on Red and Dream Syndicate you know you must have went blimey we're kind of popular in the UK you know how did that happen and it's and it's people like me who go yes I've discovered a new band that no one else has so um, that's always quite important and I guess I I can't I have no idea what it's like now for young kids but for us that was that was everything you know discovering the band that you feel like they were your band and yeah. no one else knew them, which was so important. Did you were you surprised when you know you found, you know, both Europe, you know, the UK and Europe were sort of excited by the Dream Syndicate? Um, good question. It was a weird thing because now you know we really we got popular so fast in the states. I mean, from the time of our first gig to recording our first record, to playing our first show, to being in every magazine around the country was a matter of two months. It just was so instant. It, it, was, it was crazy. So we had that really huge flush of attention here in the States in 82. And um, it was wild. I was working at a record store at the time. I, my job, I worked at Rhino Records. The, 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 the label had a flagship store in LA and I worked there and it was kind of arguably the coolest store in LA. And I was there hustling records and selling, you know, Strangely enough, my, my, um, the guy I worked with every day behind the counter was Nels Klein, who's in Wilco now. So we were the two of us sitting there selling records and <laughs> telling people what to listen to and being kind of snobbish about stuff. Yes. And, you know, and, you know yeah, and I, was, I was just doing that. And, and the thing is, our, I mean, when the day, the, day we, the, the day Days of Wine and Roses came out, I was working at the store and I stocked it on the shelves myself, on the top shelf, naturally, because I could. And, and it was just very quick. It was so to answer your question, by the t- by the time we came to the UK, uh, we played Dingwalls in the, in the fall of 84. And it was, it was the first time, not only the first time I played a show in the UK or Europe, it's the first time I set foot over there. I'd never even been out of the country. So this was like a big deal. I mean, I really got off the plane. Bam, first time over there, got in a car and I was on stage at Dingwalls like six hours later. And it all happened very quickly. And it was, it was weird about it. And this is very, it kind of was a, a sobering thing that gave me perspective that, that, that was a good thing for me probably is that by the time we came over to the UK for our first tour, we were already having a backlash in the States. We were already having people saying, well, the Dream Syndicate, Days of Wine and Roses was great, but I don't know about this medicine show stuff. And suddenly we go over to the UK and it's like, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Like, oh, really? Really? You like us? I thought everybody hated us now. So it was kind of nice just to extend that feeling of being mattering to people, being exciting. And that was a nice kick in the pants for us. Yeah. And it was a, and it was an amazing show. I mean, that whole tour, you know, 
going across Europe, going, going, you know, mostly it was mostly, um, if I remember right, Holland, Germany, Scandinavia, and the UK. We didn't go down south in that tour, and it was amazing. It was great. I would imagine so. Yes, I could imagine the the education of sort of going around there was fantastic. And when you do yeah. your follow, follow up album, you had a kind of quite a name producer as well, didn't you, Sandy Pearlman? from who done Blue Oyster Cult and The Clash. Exactly. Did you, um, how did that uh, come about, that, that sort of, um, not marriage, but that kind of partnership? Because the producers are an important part of the integral part of the recording process. And often, you know, people look back and go, yeah, that was a great idea. And perhaps it wasn't. So what was your experience with that? Uh, it, was, it was, well, we, had a, we made our first album for Slash Records with a guy named Chris, Chris D, Chris Desjardins, who, um, who, who, who was in the Flesh Eaters and produced the first Gun Club record and a lot of other stuff. And we made that record in three days, really in one day with a couple other days, just to kind of mix it and stuff like that. So, you know, the idea of getting a record producer for the second album, which again, we'd gone from, it, it's just weird how fast everything was. We'd gone from making a record like that for small labels, still working on day jobs to being hoarded by every major label out there. And when we signed, when we had to get a producer, like, oh my God, now what? And I think that by this time we were getting ready to make the second album, the guitarist in the band, Carl Prakota and I had started to split apart a little bit. I think the success we had, had a very different impact on me and Carl. Carl saw the success and said, this is our chance to go for it, go for the big time. He said, this is, he used the phrase big time a lot. It's like, we're in the, he said, we're, we're in the big time now. My reaction to it was the exact opposite. It's, it made me feel like I want to make the damaged loser record I've always wanted to make. So I wanted to make Big Star Third, and he wanted to make a UFO album. I don't. Maybe that's not fair at all. He was a big UFO fan, but it, but right. we, we each had different. So finding a producer was hard because I wanted somebody with punk rock cred. He wanted somebody with hard rock cred, and voila, Sandy Perlman, who produced the Clash and the Dictators on one hand. Louis Cole, on the other hand, who also really liked us a lot, who came to our show and said, you guys are great. And I didn't realize, I think over the years since we made that record, I've really appreciated who Sandy was more than I knew at the time. I mean, rest in peace, he just died a couple of years ago. You know, at the time, all I knew of Sandy was this guy who made a few records in my collection. He was really one of the inventors of rock journalism. Of, of He was there right there at the beginning of the underground with with the Velvets, with Patti Smith, with all of this. He was just a very intellectually and creatively important person in the history of rock and roll. I didn't fully get that time. And it was just kind of, it was, to be honest, a struggle because Sandy, as I found out with other bands he's worked with that I met over the years, takes forever to make records. So all I knew is we were making a record for six months after making the first one in three days. And it was hellish and I wanted to get out of it as fast as possible, which just never ended. It was, you know, um, you know, I, I, I was reading <laughs> The Trial by Kafka a lot in that day, I think, because I saw that same thing happening with us. It was, yes. it was, it was, it was, I was whipping myself by reading that book at the time over and over. Yes, it was like well, that. There's some people's marriages that even last that long, especially in Vegas. if they. Got uh. so, um, yeah, so that was kind of, I would imagine that was quite hard. And did you get management sort of? Because a few months ago, I did an interview with dear old Miles Copeland, who was um, Mr. IRS and the police mm-hmm. and various other bands as well that included REM. And, you know, he, for all his ups, you know, all his personality, 
I mean, he was very like Peter Grant, very protective of his bands and knew what you had to do after making some mistakes in the 70s. <laughs> um, but did you manage to sort of get that kind of side of the band sorted out? Because obviously the Smiths definitely didn't. Um, so I just wondered how you were getting on with your band dynamics. Well, um, it's right, because one real big misconception at the time. Now, yeah, bear in mind that when, we, when this all happened, it was a time when there was a feeling indie labels good, major labels bad, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we, we were one of the first to make that jump in our scene. Of course, you know, you look before that and all the punk rock bands were on major labels, but it are, in our era, bands were sticking more to SST and, and um, um, what else was there? Whatever else was out there. We, it was, yeah, I, I can't, I keep saying it, but it was crazy. We were, we were all of a sudden on A&M who were a very, very good label and made the album we made. We, took the time making it, all that. And a lot of people assumed, well, they must have been pressured by the label to do this, or it must have been a lot of label meddling or this. The truth of the matter is, and it's shocking to me now, is that in the six months we made Medicine Show, the record label only came up one time. They were paying the bills. I think they felt like something's happening here. There's this underground band that people seem to love. We, don't, we won't even dare to tell them what to do. They must know what they're doing. And they kept paying the bills and paying the bills. And after about three months of whatever we were doing up there and them not hearing anything we were doing, they, the, the head of the um, of A&R and the guy who signed us came up, got drunk with us, listened to the recording we were making and said, all right, great, we're going back home now. So we were kind of on our own, just kids. Just, we were just, just kids making our second album in a world we were, you know, with, with, with all this money flying around and all this time. And a guy at the helm, Sandy, who did not corral us, but rather just took it even, you know, into more spending. Sandy Perlman in his office at the studio had one bit of artwork on his wall, and that was a poster for Apocalypse Now. And I should have seen that as a warning, that that was his guiding light, that, 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 that <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola making Apocalypse Now was probably his, 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 his inspiration for everything he did. I think he, because I think he was doing the same thing on records he made. Blimey. All, <laughs> I guess anyway, it, so it so could we, be we, worse. It could have been Betty Blue or Taxi Driver, which was very popular posters of the eighties as well. You're right. It could have been just the poster, but I don't think so. I think I think he liked that whole thing of like you. I think he liked that thing. You just chase things down endlessly till you find the magic moment, no matter how long it takes. Me, yes. Oh, your God, yes. Yeah. That was um, Marlon Brando, right at the end there. So uh, looking, yeah, yeah. Looking for the ultimate truth. Was he? Did you feel like you were on that kind of going down the river and thinking, my God? You know, we are we going to find the perfect everything? Yeah, and 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 the perfect everything meant not the perfectly executed, but the perfect moment, the perfect. Yes. So I think that record is such medicine shows such a an, a strong, confrontational, emotional record, which I think you know, and and this is not said in a way of bragging or boasting, but. I think it's a record unlike any record that came before and most that came after. It was it's, it's a weird beast. It's not like anything I've done ever again. It's just this kind of giant technicolor, over the top, damaged. You know everything. It's it's, it's a weird record. Um, if you know, if anything I heard since it came out the that seemed like it followed in the footsteps would be things like say Nick Cave and the Bad Seats, which is not to say oh I invented Nick Cave. Granted, he was first of all the birthday party predates us, but there was that kind of extreme emotional catharsis kind of thing that Sandy made us fearless to attempt. 
we might not have gone that over the top without his encouragement. That was, yeah. that, that was good. But it did kind of break at the band. Look, to be that age and to be facing the success we had and then the backlash we had and also what that meant as far as who we wanted to be, it did break us apart. And shortly after that record, Carl and I, um, we no longer spoke. We weren't friends anymore. We we didn't trust each other. We felt that each we each felt the other one was ruining the mission we had ahead of us, and we stopped playing together. Yeah, that was that. And and you had an was it a bit of an existential angsty moment because you then do a collaboration with Dan from Green on Red, who's obviously quite a you know was very prolific and and kind of brilliant, um, you know, singer songwriter as well. Yeah. Did that did that feel I mean, what was the you know motivation for thinking? Yes, I know what I need to do and do a collaboration with a totally different person. Yeah, and it was it wasn't that premeditated, but it, you know, Dan was my my best friend at the time, and, and still a good friend. Although we don't, we're, we've been in different cities for um, a long time now, so I don't haven't seen him in a while. Um, but we were best friends, and he kind of encouraged me. He knew what I was going through, and he encouraged me to come down and record one song for his then girlfriend, Susie Wren, she was doing a compilation of LA indie and punk musicians doing country songs. And Dan said, let's write a song together for it and do it. So we wrote Bend in the Road and um, threw together all of our pals and our scene from the Long Riders and the you know, Red and the Dream Syndicate and recorded the song, you know, in, in, in a couple hours and had a great time doing it. And yeah, it was, it was what I needed at the time. It's like, I am... I, I'm so tired of spending months and months making a record. Making a record in one hour would be great. And it was fun. It was a good experience. We made that whole album. The album's called The Lost Weekend, but we joke, it didn't take a whole weekend. We were done by Saturday night. It was just, <laughs> we, we blew that out so fast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But then, you know, I mean, with the, the spirit of youth, you managed to sort of pull together the band back again for an album the following year, which was Out of the Grey. So this was like a new... Kind of a new chapter because obviously you had a new guitarist but a new record label as well well we started out of the gray still on a m we did a lot of demos for that what became out of the gray with a m three sets of demos and they were very you know they they seemed encouraging and they were happy to spend money and time to make our next record we got sick of waiting we just wanted to get out and play you know we, we to us i think once yeah, you know, everything that happened in those years of making Days of Wine Roses and Medicine Show in those two or three years was just a wild roller coaster. And I was actually drunk for a lot of it and and and, and it was just kind of know, out of control. Once that phase ended and we got ready to make out of the gray, I think that began everything that's happened to today. Just I, I, I decided at that point, look, I enjoy this, I like what I'm doing, and I just want to make I just want to write songs record songs and go out on the road and play songs and have fun doing it and try to each time I do it do it really you know better than the last time I did it and find new ways to do it and be for lack of a better word be an artist be a be a, be the guy be the like I said earlier just be another record in my record collection and all the other records I love and that was the beginning of that yeah it hasn't ended until now it was I'm no longer this it was no longer this feeling of like you know you know I think I got cured of thinking about record labels and thinking about success very early on, and which was a good thing. And and I have to say, I don't, 
you know, I know I'm aware I'm not stupid. I manage myself. So I, I, I know how things work, but really all I just want to do is get from the one record to the next record, from one tour to the next tour and keep doing it. Yes. And that was the start of that. And how did you come across, John, is it Johnette from the Concrete Blondes? Because he appears, doesn't he, does the vocal on Let It Rain, which he, he does appear on one of those compilations. She. She, she sorry. So she, <laughs> she, <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> yes. She appears, or they appear, on that compilation of um, The Carpenters, don't they? The the one that's um, Sonic Youth sort of got. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she and, does. Um, what does she do again? I forgot. I, I have that somewhere. Right. Um, yes. And uh, yes, I just wonder how you came across her. She was my girlfriend. <laughs> we we were going out for three years. So yeah, she, before before Concrete Blonde, she actually, she actually worked at A and M, and we met via. She was in artist relations, which I guess maybe ended up being taken very literally. Um, but yeah, we went out for for several years and broke up right about the time Concrete Blonde got started. But stayed friends. Right. God, thank God for that. No, it was just one of those compilations. I think Thurston Moore and possibly Kim Gordon and various other people did Once I Was a Carpenter and everyone does a kind of a cover of a... Yeah, yeah. Yes, and, I love their, their version of Superstar is really nice. That's great. It, it is it's incredible. And I just remember seeing the lineup and thinking, God, oh, that was a, an amazing sort of feeling. So what you were saying a little bit earlier there was this kind of idea of sort of um, yes, establishing an, not an identity, but a confidence in your own ability that you're not just an imposter anymore. Did that take a little bit of kind of a leap of kind of imagination or sort of consciousness to feel that this, yes, this is what I'm going to do? No, at that point, no longer. You know, I, I think that, look, everyone talks about the imposter syndrome and that kind of thing. And it's a real thing. I mean, and, and, it's, and it's, I, I really enjoy reading or listening to interviews with you know, with other musicians, with my heroes and stuff like that, because across the board, whether it's Dylan or McCartney or anybody, everybody has that moment where, what am I doing? You know, I, I just wrote the worst song of my life this morning. I read the paper and all these young bands are, you know, the bands that matter and I don't matter anymore. And, and that's a natural thing. And you, you get past that point. And I don't know if you're lucky you get past all that and worrying about that and just say, this is what I do. And I know for myself, like right now, I'm writing songs for a New Dream Syndicate album. We're going to go in the studio next month to make make a new album. And I have songs I'm working on. And some of the, there's a couple, one song in particular that I think is one of the best things I've ever written. And it came very easily. And on those days, I think, man, life's as good as it's ever been. And other mornings, I slave over a lyric that's taking weeks and going nowhere and seemed like the most trite piece of garbage I've ever experienced in my life. And I think, why am I even doing this? That's natural. And, and you know, Anybody who does anything creative, whether it's writing a novel or writing a screenplay or writing a, a perspective for a board meeting for a corporation has that feeling. And some days you got it, some days you don't. And once you get past that feeling of, you know, because I'm sure that after Days of Wine and Roses in my mind was, well, the whole world loves us. So I want the whole world to keep loving us. Ain't going to happen. It just mm -hmm. is not going to happen. If you're around long enough, you're going to go up through ups and downs. You know, I mean, I love the example. There's a million examples of that. But, you know, when the greatest one I love is Leonard Cohen, who who wrote and recorded Hallelujah for an album that was rejected by his label and came out on a tiny indie label and was out of print within a year. It's like, you know, it's like, well, there's your classic all time pop song that that was a loser in his time. You, you, you get hum you get humbled repeatedly. And I think the ones who stick it out say, all right, all I'm going to try to do is something that excites me. And hopefully I'll pick up a few people at the same time.
Yes, because at the beginning I mentioned, you know, David Bowie was my first single and my first love and I stayed with him. But then when I sort of look back at his career, I realised that he spent six years in the in the 60s kind of going nowhere fast, making some pretty weird songs and albums, considering what was that being released at the time, which was, right. as you know, like the Beatles and Stones and Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, etc. You know, and you're thinking, God, he was putting this stuff out, which was you know, that took him six years of kind of rejection to sort of, you know, and keep going. And then you had the 70s, which was obviously one album a year for that whole period, and well as well as a couple of films and relocated and, you know, lots of different musicians. And then his 80s work, you know, is a bit hit and miss. And then he established himself, you know, and he, I mean, it's not all brilliant because he does a drum and bass album, which is a bit hit and miss as well. But, you know, it's kind of interesting looking at different uh, artists and you must also <clears throat> with your body of work kind of see yourself in decades and thinking god that was my that was the 80s period and this is definitely the 90s and I can sort of feel shifts of my where I was living and who I was with and that's right and, and your emotional state kind of reflected a lot in the music that you you both you know rec recording and writing yeah and it's funny we'll look at Bowie as an example I mean he he made a few albums around the turn of the century, turn of the century, like Heathen and um, um, Reality, Reality, and around that time, there are good records. No one cared about them. They were they were they're <laughs> barely regarded. And you look like the you know those are pretty good records with good songs and kind of him doing what he does. But he was no he no longer mattered. And then next thing you know, he comes back and then he dies, which you know, and then people look back and say, well, greatest artist of the last thirty years. Yeah, but you stop caring about him. He stopped paying attention. He was probably somewhere saying, oh, I thought I made a good record and nobody liked it. Oh, well, I better yes. make another one. Or maybe I better quit for 10 years and kind of regroup and decide what to do next. Whatever it is, I'm sure it wasn't fun for him. I'm sure it wasn't fun to slave over a record that was, you know, if not if not Ziggy Stardust, it was a ha pretty good record and have people shrug their shoulders. It happens. But it's, happened with, it's happened with me. And, 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 you know, you mentioned Roxy Music. I know Brian Eno, when, when Bowie had collaborated with him in the 70s, just after his kind of golden period of, you know, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Diamond Dogs, possibly not. Um, yes, and, and Young Americans. When they, they start doing, the, you know, the Berlin Trilogy. And the, the experimentation during that period is extraordinary. And I know Eno said, look, it doesn't matter. No one's going to die whatever we produce here and obviously some record some critics like charles Shaw murray absolutely slates low which obviously he has to regret every day of his life now because <laughs> you know it was a big mistake do you also have that same sort of feeling sometimes that you're thinking look this is going to be for myself this record and if someone likes it great but i'm not going to try and chase it because one thing i did notice about the 80s is that um, artists who had been you know on the zeitgeist or certainly doing some good stuff in the 70s got really lost in the 80s they were all apart from the hairstyles mm. they, mm -hmm. they went for the mullet you know you had you know Robert and, produ Clark. and production too production yes too. and they went for the producer of the time you know that that's some of those you know rod stewart uh, robert uh, robert plant and bowie's last two albums never let me down and um tonight are just like oh that is mm. painful and your image as well and you know you suddenly see pete frampton appearing on guitar and you're thinking that's tricky and i just wondered if you, you know you find it easier when you're thinking this has got to be pure for myself rather than thinking oh if i do this and that i might be able to sell a few more units i mean every, every time the, the records you make that you can honestly say to yourself I like this. I really, this is my kind of music. Are you to the ones that hold up the best? And maybe not in the time they were released, but eventually. 
like I said, Days of Wine and Roses, when we finished that record, the four of us said, this would be our favorite record. And we weren't trying to convince ourselves it would be or justify, but this is fantastic. We knew it. And I've had, I've probably had that experience five or six times out of 30 records where I walked out of the studio and said, this couldn't be better. This is just, and the last time I had it was my last record. Um, the, the Universe Inside by the Dream Syndicate, the one we put out, unfortunately, in the beginning of the pandemic. So we never got to tour behind it, but it was a double album, five songs, 70 minutes long, not one song under eight minutes, really kind of a, a full 70 minute song cycle. It was all recorded in real time. I, I think it's one of my favorite things I've ever made. And sure enough, the reaction to it wasn't chart topping, but the people who liked it love it the same way I did. And that's a good yes. feeling. And, and, it's, and, very, I, and yeah. it's an amazingly experimental and trippy album, isn't it? Because I've been listening to it in the last few, you know, few weeks. And it's like, oh, this is... Um, this takes you on quite a journey, doesn't it? it? Yeah, it does. And it's also the type of thing where we had and I had an idea in mind what the kind of record would be. And it all happened easy and seamlessly, which is great when that happens. There, as it was coming along, it was happening. You know, we'd, I'd be working on it with the engineer on, on some crazy harmony vocal melody idea. And so I'd, I'd love some type of thing here that's like, I don't know, Tropicalia kind of vocal, like this. And I, was, I went to, would go to the piano and play it. And what I would play in the first attempt would be, yeah, that's it, let's do it. That's great when that happens. And everything you do is spontaneous and, and fun and loose and whimsical, and it all works. You know, yes. the, the flip side of that is when you, when you work on something endlessly and say, I'm trying to get there, I hear it, I don't know what it is. And maybe after a week, you find it. But when you get it easily and you hear it, it all comes so, you know, effortlessly. That's great. And when you listen to the final record and say, I really, really like this. And Best when, feeling. And when you, because I did an interview with Chris, who's in Berlin very recently. So was he for like, you know, recording in Berlin and then sending the files over to put this, you know, into the, onto the record? Or did he come over and record it with you? No, um, you mean Chris Kakavis, right? Yes. Okay. Um, no, he, he um, we, the record, what that record is, um, we were making our last album, um, These Times, back in, in 2018. And uh, we were just making, you know, a normal song album that came out, which I like the record a lot. One evening, about, you know, sometime after midnight, Stephen McCarthy of the Longwriters, who lives in the city where we made the record, um, Richmond, Virginia, came by the studio and we thought, well, let's just, you know, have a few beers and sit and tell some stories. And we thought, wait, we've got a recording studio right here. We're hanging out. We're all musicians. Let's just go jam. And we just jammed for an hour and a half without stopping, without break, without words, without instruction. Just we played almost each person involved was was daring the others not to stop. We were gonna we we're gonna play and play until somebody finally gave up, and nobody did for an hour and a half. And we then it was two in the morning. We said, well, it wasn't that fun. But over the following years after we did that, I listened to that all the time. And I said, this is really this great connection of six people, the the, the five members of the Dream Syndicate and Steve McCarthy. This is this really we were all hearing each other and responding and taking turns leading the way like it's like a, like a like a good jazz band or whatever um, or a psychedelic band would and i just loved it and from that point on i i i you know without 
I kind of took it over myself and I said, I'm going to try to see what I can do with this material, adding things, taking away and did it on my own with a hat, with some guests here and there. And that became the album. Right. So everything, everything Chris did, for example, was done in real time. And it's amazing. Yeah. It was, yeah. And it there, was, was not, no, there was, there was no fixing the, it, for example. The slightly trippy world of velvet, um, velvet, not the velvet, um, Jefferson airplane. Uh, you know, there was kind of those, those kind of elements of, um, yes, kind of lightness of sonic touch. You know, that. Well, you know, the, the best example of that kind of thing was the thing which I had in my head the whole time were those Miles Davis records, the early 70s, where, you know, all he was doing back then from In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew through the mid 70s was he'd get a bunch of people in a room, let them go. And then he and his um, producer, Teo Macero, would then cut it all up and chop it to bits and use things from here and there. And it's great. It's like that was like, that's a great way. You know, the kind of thing Eno would do later on as well and stuff like that. Yes. That's, and he always worked with Bill Evans as well. Do you find that you, you've you sort of got yourself a sort of a group of people that you feel you can really trust and sort of bounce ideas from and sort of get the best out of each other? Yeah, I, I definitely have the core of like 10 people now, 12 people who I work with all the time who, you know, either in the baseball project with, you know, with, with, that, with that bunch of people, with the Dream Syndicate. It's kind of... The, the same group of people. And it's funny. I, I'm guessing well, everybody had this experience. You, you probably did too. But when the pandemic hit, your world shrunk down. Um, <laughs> yeah. obvi obviously, obviously, to people you would see most certainly, but even people you communicated with. And I found outside of my immediate family, the people I spent all my time emailing and, and Skyping with and all that kind of thing were those 10 people. That, yeah. that, that's really my, my family. Jason, Dennis, Mark, Chris from the Dream Syndicate and Peter and Mike and Scott and of course my wife um, in the Baseball Project and that's you know that really yeah, that is the those are the people I like to work with and there's always a fascination to wouldn't it be wild to work with a total stranger and try something crazy and I do like that but you know it's like that that you know that, that the, the little core family of working together we all trust each other and we we've we've we catch each other if we leap too far off the cliff you know and and, and that's a it's a good feeling of safety. So with Dennis Duck on drums, yes. you go back a long way, don't you? Oh my God. <laughs> yes. That's quite a relationship, isn't it? You know, that is quite, um, you know, a solid amount of work that you two and experiences you two have been together. It's astounding. I mean, yeah, 40 years playing music, hanging out with sharing vans, backstages, hotel rooms with, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. That's a, yeah. that's a long relationship, and we're we've remained friends through it all. It's incredible. Yeah, and, and it must be, and it must be also quite nice just kind of working with people like the Green on Red guys as well, like Chris and Dan as well. You know, sort of knowing that there must be a period or part of you where you suddenly think, God, we've become, we are survivors in this kind of really tricky gig. You know, it's not the easiest of uh, careers or industries to be in, is it? No, we've all shared something, you know, really important. You know, it's funny because about seven, eight years ago, um, the Paisley Underground Gang, the Bangles, the Dream Syndicate, the Rain Parade, and um, 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 Three O'Clock did a couple shows together in California. So we, uh, we, there was a little period there where we were sort of hanging out together, those shows and promotions, stuff like that. And we really, you know, even though we all had different lives, like the Bangles became hit makers you know they were they they were on top of the charts but once we were all together we 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 all had this moment we shared yes that, that, would... that nobody else can have we can all remember what it was like to 
get that first flush success at the same time. And we've all had our ups and downs, whether, you know, some had higher heights and lower lows, but we all kind of follow the same pattern. And yet at the end of the day, I get it. I get, I get why you hear, you know, that certain musicians from certain eras or just friends in general or old soldiers who fought in the same war, why they say, yeah, this is who I hang out with because, you know, this is, they get me, <laughs> they know what I'm all about. Yes, absolutely. And um, I mean, with, with, you know, with yourself, have you managed to sort of navigate through that kind of tricky kind of lifestyle that is music? Because I know with a lot of people you into, you know, I've interviewed, you know, there's there's kind of moments where you think, oh, yes, they kind of lost it. They had a drinking habit, the cocaine habit, the meth habit. You know, <laughs> Did you manage to sort of kind of come through little periods like that relatively okay? Or could you sort of, did you manage to check yourself before it got too horrendous? A little more of that. I mean, you know, but but nothing, nothing. You know, that's gonna, you know, make any any scandal tell all book. Whatever. No, but yeah. But, but but like everybody, you know, when you're young, you're pushing the limits of everything. And I did that, like like other people. Like um, came through it okay. You know, yes. Not, not, not I wasn't nothing too saintly, nothing too too um too perilous. So bringing it forward, because obviously we've had the horrendous pandemic, which has been, you know you know for a lot of artists I know that there was a few people who had just kind of got their work together they got the album coming out they got the tour all lined up last year and then it just stopped and it was like oh shit so and you were in a similar situation how did you manage to navigate kind of again sort of get yourself out of that funk and sort of back into some kind of commitment or groove well, I mean, I guess we're going to find out. I mean, this could be interesting. I'm actually going out. I've already got 30 shows booked for the period of September to January, um, all solo shows in Europe and the U.S. And then the Dream Snicket next year is our 40-year anniversary of, of the formation of the band and of the Days of Wine Roses. We're going to do a lot of shows behind that. And I'm really curious to see what it's going to be like. Look, I, have, I haven't been off the road this long since I was 20. You know, this is, this is, this is so I'm curious what it'll be like to be out there again, what'll be, what audiences will be like, what the connection will be like, will we all be scarred, will we all be exhilarated, so it's hard to say. During the pandemic, it was weird, it was weird, and for me, a, a good thing, because um, in, in 2019, I made four albums, I made a solo acoustic album, I was working on a box set of my first 10, uh, of a 10-year period called, called Decade, I've made the universe inside the dream snicket record and also a collaboration with a band from LA called psychic temple. So these four records were all made in 2019. So last year I was, so they all came out and I was in the process of doing interviews like this, promoting them best I could during a pandemic. And, and, um, my wife, my wife, Linda and I did 35, 40 virtual shows online. So it kind of, I stayed as active as you could possibly hope. I mean, I kind of sort of, you know, didn't, you know, it was like the wild, wily coyote going off the cliff. I didn't look down too much. The, yes. the, 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 it's not like I was in denial. It's not like I didn't know what was going on. None of us did, but, but there was, you know, as opposed to just some people just stopped and didn't, you know, I'm, I, I'm, a, let me put it this way. I, I know a lot of people, including Jason, my guitarist, the dream syndicate, who said, man, I didn't pick up a guitar for six months. And I get that because for a lot of people they had, that wasn't first and foremost in their mind. I guess I just sort of kept moving forward and just kept doing my thing and all the way through it. Yeah. Best absolutely. I could. I know. Best I, I could. 
a few people said, look, that's my guitar. I haven't changed the strings on it and I need, I need to get going. I, you know, and, you know, people with phenomenal kind of careers in music, which is kind of horrendous. Does that mean that um, you've got new material that you've been working on that's going to be coming out as well over the next year? Yep. New, well, the, the new Dream Snicket album will probably come out next year and then whatever else comes along. Yeah, I just kind of keep doing it. Yes, absolutely. And if you could have said something to your, say, like 16, 18 year old self starting out and you could have thought, yes, after all these decades of wisdom and experience, is there a few things that you would have just kind of whispered in their ear and said, yes, I would definitely do that. That's a good idea. Keep doing that. But I would add a few extra bits. I just wonder if there's a couple of bullet points you would say this could be, yeah, it would have been worth knowing when you started out. Well, that, that kid would not have listened if I had tried to tell no, him. No, so. this is true. <laughs> this, is, so, this, this is the case, been, isn't it? Would have yeah. been, been pointless. But it would I mostly would have said, don't worry. Just just, just do, it, do what you do. I, I think when, when a, a lot of times people say, you know, do you have any advice for young musicians? And um, the advice I usually give is to somebody is to say, you were always right, which is to say, even when you're wrong, you're always right. If, if to you it feels right, if what you're, if the music you're hearing in your head is exciting you, that no matter what anybody tells you, if someone says that's career suicide, if someone says that's crap, that's that's gonna make my head explode, um, that's bland and boring, and that's derivative. If you like it, you're right, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You don't let, don't let, don't let, don't let you know anybody tell you. If you hear that in your head and you, that's what you believe in, then you're right. And I think that would have been a good thing for me to remember through some of the harder times to, to yeah. think like, you know, it doesn't, it, you're right. And second, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. If you, if it gets you off, if it makes you excited, then you're home free. Yes. Well, I always remember Neil Young just always followed his, I think he said he followed his moves, whatever that meant. But, you know, he did, you know, if it was Maine's walking away from Crosby, Stills and Nash when they were just about to sign some mega deal. He did it and he just recorded the next album that he wanted to and um you know he he obviously just had that integrity and confidence to keep doing it so i think people like neil young and david bowie you know they were quite amazing because there were sort of albums that you think god i bet someone would have gone no we could have just do hunky dory again you don't mm -hmm. never mind just do it david neil get on with it <laughs> you know what i i think i think most if i have I have one weird regret about my career, and that is I've never made an awful record. Says me. Other people might disagree, but I haven't. You know, you look at the Bowie, where, where you say, you know, maybe you're referring to Black Tie, White Noise, I think it is. Or which yes, is and well, there was Never Let Me Down and Tonight, which. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But those, but those records were bad because he just didn't have the songs and the, have it together. Whereas he made some weird bad records, and Trans by Neil Young and um, um, Dylan making you know, the, the Christian records, which are now looked upon as being great records. But, you know, a lot of Lou Reed, my God, Metal Machine Music and a few others too, Mistrial, another one. All these guys, they allow themselves just to do something where, like you say, somebody would say, no, don't do that. And they did it anyway. And I admire that so much. I think that's how you make great records is by daring yourself to make a really bad one. Yes, take the risk. Take, take the, the risk, yeah. And as Brian Eno said, Eno said, you know, no one's going to die. No one's going to die. You're not in the operating theatre again. Mm -hmm. I'll just have a go with this live. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, that's, that's all good. But look, Steve, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And um, yes, you're in New York, aren't you? I am. Yes. I'm Jackson Heights, Queens, New York.
probably near where, where, where were you at Norwich England oh. I, don't know if, I don't know if you ever played Norwich in the... I have I haven't actually yeah well hopefully when you tour you'll be in this kind of Cambridge London Birmingham sort of area will hopefully come and catch you live so that would be fantastic that'd did be great play, did you ever play Glastonbury Festival yes 86 it was exciting very oh, very thrilling wow. 86 my first yeah. was 87 so there you okay. go but they yeah very very exciting i would imagine it was but look thank you ever so much and if you want i can always send you the link and then you could use it elsewhere and that would be fantastic but um, i will i will of course i'll definitely let people know about it that's great okay look have a lovely evening and or actually afternoon for you isn't it and um, take care and thanks again steve my pleasure good talking to you it was fun take care cheers bye-bye and that Dear listener, is me in conversation or was me in conversation with the singer-songwriter Steve Wynn from the Dream Syndicate. Um, if you want to know any more information, well, just Google. There's going to be loads of stuff out there. And hopefully, yes, he was talking about it during that interview. So look, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do The C86 Show. Also, these um, have all been archived, these interviews, and you can find those on Spotify iTunes or Podbean and um, like I said always nice to hear from you as long as it's nice and positive otherwise you know just hit delete anyway have a great week and um, stay safe